Okay, at the moment I'm passing around to you. Um, No, there's going to be another one, but there's one, at the moment there's only one in circulation, okay, which has a page on the uncanny and on the death drive, okay, is, uh, let me, you got it, is it run out, is there enough there? No, it's going around there, is it, okay. And there's a second handout uh, that I wanted to give you, which is um, in, the last, in the last seminar of the course, um, we'll finish a little bit early um, in order for you to fill out the feedback forms. Now, the feedback forms that we usually give uh, students, thanks, um, from my point of view, pretty useless because they're just numbers. And they're there for the bureaucrats in the registry, really. Um, it's a kind of faux mathematics, so they can add them up and divide and create averages, etc. But obviously, numbers, a mathemat mathematician would laugh at this use of numbers. Numbers are not being used mathematically, they're being used as sort of symbols to represent a judgment. So one person thinks it was a great course, I think I'll give it four, another one says, oh, it was a bit disappointing, but okay, I'll give it four. You know, the same number represents a different, and then they add it up and they get an average, and it just me it's meaningless. But we have to do it. What I'm more interested in is actually words and language and, and getting back some opinions from you or some feedback about the course. So I've devised my own, um, uh, my own uh, feedback form. If you could take this away, spend a little bit of time thinking about it and uh, bring it to the seminar tomorrow. Okay, I will be handing out some copies in the seminar to people who aren't here but it's much more useful in terms of thinking about the structure of the course and what works or what doesn't work or whatever than just, you know, um, a series of numbers. Sorry? Oh, sorry, I keep giving the wrong ones out, do I? Right, okay, you better give it back to me, it's the wrong one. Oh, I can't believe this. Are they all that? Because they've turned up in the wrong, in the wrong, um, in the wrong envelopes. Is it, it is too, right, okay. Damn. Well, I can't, I'll be giving it, well, you know in advance anyway. I'm giving them out to you tomorrow. <laughs> Hopefully they'll be in the right envelope, okay, when that happens. Um, uh, okay. Now, people, did people get the email, yes, I sent you with the little diagram? Um, and there's another diagram in the handout I've sent around as well, okay. Um, and they've come from the same chapter uh, of Laplanche's book, Life and Death in Psychoanalysis, where he's trying to think about um, this strange concept of the death drive. Sorry, that's the wrong form, so, <laughs> okay. Um, this concept of the death drive, and he's trying to interpret it. Why should this concept have arisen at this point in the development of Freud's thought? Okay, and that's the context, thanks. That's the context for, um, uh, for the diagrams. Um, and he's thinking about the underlying structural logic of the, of the Freudian field, of the psychoanalytic field, 
uh, and the way in which certain um, conceptual configurations repeat across 30 years uh, or more even. Uh, and one of the striking things I think about um, a lot of Freud's late work is the way in which the apparently repudiated model of trauma comes back okay, in, in different forms. Um, and we'll, we see it in, uh, explicitly in, his, in chapter two, Beyond the Pleasure Principle, where he's considering forms of repetition. And he's concerned with um, the way in which certain forms of repetition uh, can't be explained by, in any very obvious way, by um, the pleasure principle, which he had seen hitherto as dominating uh, psychic processes and is in some sense organizing psychic structure. Um, so there are forms of repetition that have become increasingly a problem. They're a problem clinically, but they're a problem theoretically for understanding. And so he's, he's and of course this is 19, uh, this is in, well it's published in 1920, but he's thinking about it in the years beforehand. It's the years immediately after the First World War. And one of the things, the First World War and the kind of violent trench warfare and loss of life in the First World War did, it put trauma back on the, on the agenda again. Uh, war trauma, uh, not the trauma of, of hysterics in hospitals um, uh, uh, or in um, uh, uh, middle-class patients in, uh, uh, on the couch in Vienna, but the trauma of soldiers, um, of shell shock, um, and, and indeed of um, bombed, bombed cities as well. So war trauma, as it were, um, is on the agenda again, uh, where it, it the notion of trauma had been had dropped off, had been dismantled, repudiated, deconstructed in various ways, and suddenly you get a whole flood of people, uh, overwhelmingly men, soldiers, but also some civ civilians of both sexes, who are exhibiting certain uh, symptomologies that had been um, uh, talked about and analysed back in the 1890s. So suddenly traumatic neurosis is, has come, come back again, as it were, and Freud's considering that um, again as an anomalous form of repetition. How do we explain that in terms of the pleasure principle? Okay? The, 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 um, the compulsive uh, repetitions of, of war trauma. And particularly say the dreams, the dreams in which the dreamer replays the moment where the shell burst in the, trent, in the trench or when a friend got killed next to him or something like that. Uh, how can that be explained by the pleasure principle? So the question of repetition and negative self-destructive forms of repetition um, begin to challenge the notion of, uh, of, a, of a mental principle that seeks to, uh, to maximise pleasure and avoid unpleasure, uh, and in particular a, a, a pleasure-unpleasure distinction that is formulated by Freud as it is in Chapter 1 of Beyond the Pleasure Principle in economic terms, okay, in terms, uh, in, in, that is to say, in terms of a principle that is taken from initially physiology or biology um, and imported into, into uh, psychology and that's the principle of constancy or homeostasis. Homeostasis and its feedback mechanisms are demonstrable aspects of the, the biological organism of, uh, of, um, of, of all life. Um, and it has a certain plausible um, purchase on mental life. Um, and Freud identifies uh, the rise of tension in the psychical apparatus with unpleasure and 
and the reduction or discharge of tension or, or, or energy uh, with pleasure. Um, and I, suggest, I suggest in the email I sent out the ambiguities that attach in some ways to this. Um, uh, and Freud's, uh, uh, Freud's um, consideration begins as a, as a psychological analysis and reflection on a range of experiences of repetition. Uh, and then it, it turns into a very strange, as it were, reinvocation re of the biological. Uh, and we're not looking at that aspect to be on the pleasure principle. We haven't got time because we're more interested in the uncanny and the literary implications of that. Uh, but uh, when Freud formulates um, an answer to his question uh, as to whether these forms of repetition can or cannot be explained by the pleasure principle, and he then posits something that is, quotes, beyond the pleasure principle. Um, the psychological phenomenon is the compulsion to repeat, the repetition compulsion, um, a, a repetition compulsion even when what's being repeated is distressing, painful, or self-destructive. Um, but he then um, formulates that uh, as, 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 as an as a independent um, drive or instinct. And there's a real ambiguity about drive, the drive instinct distinction. He uses the word Todestrieb in, in German. So he is using the word Trieb. Um, sorry, it's so weak. Todestrieb, uh, or death drive. Okay. But he wants to give it a biological grounding. And the whole of chapters five and six uh, an investigation of what was then contemporary theories of biological instinct to try and to try and say that what we're facing here is is actually an instinct though he doesn't use the word instinct he, he goes on referring to it as trebe totus trebe but he wants to root it in biology and not just the biology of human beings but any li any form of living matter okay so it becomes this extraordinarily generalized, almost metaphysical principle inherent, he wants to claim, in matter, in living matter. Um, and it's a principle uh, of entropy, of driving what is highly organized or sophisticated or complex to simpler and simpler and simpler levels and finally um, exhausting, uh, driving, uh, discharging all, reser all reservoirs of energy um, and, and, and leading to a kind of self-obliteration. And he wants to see this then uh, as a general principle of all living matter, li all living being. Um, profound, it was always extremely con co uh, controversial within psychoanalysis uh, and rejected by a lot of, not the f clinical phenomenon which it's based, but the conceptualization as a dry, as a death instinct is, was often rejected by fellow psychoanalysts. But Laplanche wants not just to reject it or even to criticize it, um, but to interpret it, why now? Why at this point? What is, the, what is this concept doing, arising at this point? And so there's a, it's, it's, it's arising at a point of transformation in Freud's thought where on the one hand, he's about to posit this grand dualism of life instincts uh, versus death instincts, as Strachey translates it. And in this case, the translation as of instinct is a description of, 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 a, of the rebiologization of the psychical that's taking place in uh, Freud's theory in this text. Um, at the same time, the second topography of not conscious, pre-conscious, unconscious, but ego, 
superego and id is being formulated, right? and it comes out of the whole reflection on narcissism and the ego, etc., and the unconscious dimensions of the ego. So all these things are incubating in Freud's theory, and we get catch glimpses of them in that fascinating essay, The Uncanny, where Freud takes, a, you could say at one level, a kind of holiday from the conceptual impasses that he's, uh, uh, he, and he's rethinking of his, both his drive theory and of the topography. Um, and he's, he, he starts thinking about the, ca the category of the uncanny, das Unheimliche. Uh, and, uh, and he goes off and he rereads E.T.A. Hoffman, the great German early 19th century romantic writer, who was also, interestingly, on the one hand, a composer uh, and a dramaturg in opera uh, and wrote a lot about music. He was also a lawyer uh, and a judge in the, in the, I think, in the Prussian. Um, before, this is before the unification of Germany. I think it was in the Prussian judicial system. Um, he's an extraordinary figure, Hoffman. Um, and he, he was widely read in the psychological literature of the period. So he was interested in the mental pathologies of the criminals who appeared in, in court before him. So extraordinary figure, Hoffman. Um, so Freud goes off and rereads a lot of his work um, and zeroes in in particular on the Sandman. Um, and gives a kind of reading um, uh, of the Sandman in relationship to his reflections on what looks like an, a completely unrelated thing, this, the aesthetic of the uncanny. You know, Freud going off and doing something completely different, but of course he's not, just as when he went off in uh, 1897 and started reading and thinking about Sophocles, Oedipus, and Shakespeare's Hamlet. He was, as it were, ostensibly thinking about something different, but actually in reading those, in engaging with those tragedies, he was thinking through in a displaced way um, uh, the whole question of trauma versus development, etc. Uh, so also in, 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 in turning to the aesthetic of the uncanny and Hoffman's story, The Sandman, uh, he's replaying in various ways the question of repetition uh, and how are we to understand repetition. Um, and, and to what extent it can be conceptualized um, in, in this way or in that way, or understood entirely in terms of uh, the Oedipus complex, or whether there's other elements at work that are, that are pushing beyond that. Okay. And so what's fascinating uh, uh, in terms of the trajectory we've followed in the course is the way in which the old model of trauma comes back again, okay? and, and a lot of the notions of fixation to a trauma, uh, etc. Uh, come back again in text after text of Freud's, the very last text he wrote, Moses and Monotheism. Um, uh, he writes this specula wildly speculative history of, of, of Moses and, and, and the Jewish people and their exit from Egypt, etc., etc., um, the Ten Commandments, uh, in terms, exactly in the terms of trauma theory, only uh, elevated to the level of, um, to the level of um, a, a sort of a collective level rather than in a collective psychology rather than individual psychology. So it's a very interesting, in, in text after text, uh, in late Freud, the way in which tr um, the conceptual configurations of trauma keep coming back. And of course, in various ways, Freud is being made to confront it as the notion of fixation to a trauma and repetition. Freud is made to confront it clinically. Now, uh, in the little diagram I gave you in the email, um, 
I thought that was a very useful way of pinning down the ambiguities around the notion of the pleasure principle, because the term slips between opposites. Um, and I think Laplanche's little diagram that I, that I uh, cut and pasted into the email helps one see uh, that ambiguity. Um, okay. Um, if people have got it, have it do t have a look at it. Um, I'll, I don't know if I can exactly repeat it. Um, this is a rather faint. Okay. Um, It's not going to last, is it? Um, sorry? Where is it? Let's see if that's any better. Okay. Okay. Uh, now, there are two, uh, there are two uh, arrow, uh, lines, arrowed lines. Uh, one represents... Um, uh, uh, the pleasure principle and the other represents this thing that is beyond the pleasure principle that he's going to call the death drive or death instinct. Um, uh, and the first one, first of all, goes up like that, then it goes down again. And then uh, continues. And then there's a, a, another version of it in which it goes down and it comes up again. Okay. Now, the, the pleasure principle, his, 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 his most consistent um, identification of the pleasure principle is with the principle of constancy, with the tendency towards homeostasis. And we saw that in a, in, in a number of early texts. And the whole notion of the instinctual functioning as against drive functioning um, turned on that um, distinction, as it were. Okay. So in situations in which the, or whether the organism or the, psychi the, the psychical entity um, experiences a huge rise in, in energy and in excitation and trauma is the classic case where uh, a breach of the, of the ego's boundaries and uh, a flooding, a swamping of intense excitations that were unexpected and unmanageable takes place, okay, then the, the, uh, the apparatus regulated by the pleasure principle seeks to reduce that down to N, N where N is the original starting point and optimum level for functioning. <coughs> okay. uh, so, go, so having shot up there due to trauma, the pleasure principle, PL, seeks to bring it back again to the level of optimum functioning. And in a case where the opposite happens, okay, where a sort of psychic bottoming out or draining away of psychical energy takes place, um, then the pleasure principle then seeks obviously to increase internal energy levels to bring the, the psychic organism back to uh, that same level. Okay? So the pleasure principle could operate in either way, depending on the circumstances in which it operates, but the aim is always restorative, to bring back to something, but to the what it's bringing back to is not zero. What it's, what it's bringing or attempting to um, and it's one tendency, albeit a dominant one, um, what it's bringing back to is a level of op that is optimum for mental and bodily functioning, okay? 
which of course is not zero, obviously. Uh, and the other line in his diagram is that one. Um, no, we can call that the death drive. Uh, now that can look um, as if you know, it's heading towards homeostasis in certain circumstances. So this pressure towards discharge, okay? And, and it can look the same as this, right? Uh, so that's, in, a, in a way, it's that ambiguity that allows Freud, uh, in, this, in the statement I quoted, to say, um, uh, where is it? Um, the facts that have caused us to believe in the predominance of the pleasure principle in mental life um, also find expression in the hypothesis that the mental apparatus endeavours to keep the quantity of excitation in it as low as possible, or at least to keep it constant. And there's a real difference between these two. He, he produces that or as if they were kind of synonyms virtually, to keep it as low as possible, or at least to keep it constant. Now, they're, they're two radically different alternatives, actually. So there will be circumstances in which the pleasure principle um, you know, operates at a pressure towards discharge. And it, so it can look like the death drive, okay? But the death drive doesn't stop there. The death drive is something, it's a pressure towards absolute discharge, okay? To a radical, even catastrophic emptying out, okay? Um, so, and it doesn't stop there, it just continues to nothing, as it were. So it ruptures or it breaks through or uh, homeostasis. In certain phases, it might look like um, it's, it's heading towards homeostasis, or it may look as if it's identical with the pleasure principle, okay? But it's not um, trying to restore things back to an optimum level, okay? It's, it's this pressure towards absolute discharge um, in economic terms. So that's the, that's the ambiguity. Um, uh, at times, in some of Freud's formulations, you pull yourself up and you think, hang on, that almost equates the pleasure principle with the death drive. Um, so that's the usefulness, I think, in, in that diagram, because it shows you the distinction between these two tendencies and the way in which, at times, under certain circumstances, they can look identical, but, but actually they're not. They're, they're radically antithetical. Okay. Now, the other diagram from, in Laplanche's commentary on um, the death drive um, is the one I've just handed out. Okay, it's that kind of U um, uh, uh, bend diagram. And it's, it's, again, it's a very useful one because it's looking back over the whole, Freud's whole theoretical career or his theoretical trajectory, and it's seeing an absolute consistency at one level of his theory, albeit not at another level of his theory, okay? And that is a kind of series of, of oppositions, of antitheses, that have structured pairs of terms that have structured his arguments in text after text across a 30-year period, okay? And so he sets them up there uh, in, in, in terms of their opposites. On the one hand, there's the primary processes versus the secondary processes that we saw in Freud's account of the dream work, okay? Um, there's the notion of free energy that circulates in the unconscious and bound energy, energy that is fixed and bound um, to certain representations, which is, as it were, fixated in some way. Uh, there's the opposition itself between binding and unbinding, okay? And in the first theory of the drives, there's the opposition between sexuality and the ego, okay? And sexuality is on the side of 
primary processes, free energy and unbinding, the sexual drive, okay, as distinct from the instinct. Um, and the ego is attempting to control, master, bind, um, contain, sublimate even the drive. So the ego is on the side of the secondary processes of bound energy of binding, etc. All that is consistent, okay. Um, and in a way, the, le the last theory of the drives, of death drive uh, uh, and um, eros or life drive, um, repeats that opposition. Okay. So it looks as if it fits in. But what's extraordinary is the way sexuality has moved from one side of the opposition to the other. That's why there is this crossing over, this chiasmus. Okay. So suddenly, in, this, in the final version of the, um, second, the, the second so-called theory of the drives or of instincts, um, we've got a, a life drive that Freud wants to describe which amalgamates things that he'd previously distinguished, that, um, in which both biological instinct and psychical drive are amalgamated. And so also is um, ego libido, the libido that binds the ego into a unity. These things are all um, put together under a single heading. Um, and sometimes he refers to it as eros, or the old, he takes the old term from ancient literature, eros, uh, or the life instinct, or the life drive. Uh, and Laplanche's interpretation of the emergence of the concept of a death drive is precisely to write the balance. Okay, as sexuality in Freud from the On Narcissism paper of 1914 onwards comes increasingly to be thought by Freud in terms of uh, libidinal binding uh, and uh, the formation of, uh, of object relations and libidinal ties to objects and even identification itself um, is, is, is rooted in uh, a, a kind of lib libidinal internalization of the image of the other. Okay, so the whole idea is of libido as a form of, 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 of binding. Uh, it becomes a dominant emphasis in texts after 1914 um, and celebrated as such. Um, <coughs> and in a way, um, Laplanche argues that that's the real original, the new concept, is this, this life drive which is amalgamated and brought together things that had previously been kept separate drive, instinct, and narcissistic libido are all brought together. And the crossover point, I would say, in the diagram where sexuality passes from one side of the opposition to the other, Laplanche doesn't label it, uh, but the crossover point is narcissism. Okay? You can almost write that into your diagram. At that point with the two sides, the chiasmus, the crossover, is, is narcissism. It's through his thinking through the implications of narcissism Okay, that sexuality gets repositioned uh, as being on the side of binding um, and the secondary processes. Uh, and that almost, uh, in Laplanche's account, means that something else has to write, write the opposition. Okay, there has to be a re-emergence of a force that unbinds, uh, that undoes the ego, that challenges the ego from within, that throws it into crisis. Uh, uh, and this is what Freud calls the death drive. And he never, he never, um, he never gives it an, its own energy source. It's rather interesting, though he thinks of it as being 
uh, and a lot of later psychoanalysts take on board some version of it where they see it as being a, a tendency to violence or aggressivity, okay, as a, as a non-sexual um, force or tendency opposed to sexuality. Um, Freud never gives it, um, you know, he talks about a libido, but he never talks about a destrudo, okay? It's a separate energy source for this tendency. So where does the energy um, that fuels the death drive, where does it come from? Okay, if it hasn't got its own energy source. Uh, and as Laplanche points out, actually, this is simply, the death drive is simply performing the function that, that the sexual drive originally performed in Freud's theory, okay? As pressing towards discharge, towards immediate gratification, uh, as resisting um, postponement and delay, resisting the ego, even undoing the ego from within. Um, and he says there, uh, in, the, in, the, in the lines just before the little U-bend diagram, <coughs> um, I, I'll read out those sentences just beforehand. The energy of the sexual drive, as is known, was called libido by Freud. Born of a formalistic concern for symmetry, the term destrudo, once proposed to designate the energy of the death drive, did not survive a single day. It wasn't proposed by Freud, I think it was proposed by somebody else, and Freud just refused to take it on board. For the death drive does not possess its own energy, the planche says. Its energy is libido. Or better put, the death drive is the very soul, the constitutive principle of libidinal circulation of the primary processes of the uh, fluid and unceasing substitution of one object or term for another. Okay. So, this, so, he, so it's, and he, he takes, uh, Laplanche takes a, a very suggestive phrase from one of Freud's letters where he talks about, uh, you know, a certain for forms of sexuality as Lucifer Amor, <laughs> Lucifer Amor as this demonic form of, of the sexual, okay, which, which doesn't um, readily accommodate itself to um, sublimation and binding to a, to a single object and to a kind of um, mental, if you like, a mental homeostasis or psychical homeostasis. It's what disrupts homeostasis. So the death drive for Laplanche is a kind of almost conceptual symptom or flag of, of, a, of, a, of an impasse, as it were. At Freud's attempt in chapters five and six of that book, um, of Beyond the Pleasure Principle, to ground it in biology, okay, um, <coughs> uh, again, is something that Laplanche would, would radically contest, as indeed with a lot of psychoanalysts would radically contest. Um, and he wants to keep it as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a psychical phenomenon that is to do precisely with what is primitive and, and uh, unmanageable in the sexual drive, particularly the sexual part drive. Okay? Uh, this is going right back to the infantile sexuality, the sexual part drive something that hasn't yet been accommodated to whole persons uh, at the level of object choice. Okay, so those, those two, grams, two diagrams I find quite helpful in getting one's mind around the notion of the death drive. Okay. Uh, and Freud does use the adjective demonic of it, well, both in Beyond the Pleasure Principle and in the Uncanny essay. Um, now, the Uncanny essay is fascinating to read uh, it's published in 1919, um, where Freud is brooding over um, both 
the emergence of the death of a, of a, of a, of a death drive, something that he wants to call a, he's going to call, but he doesn't yet call a death drive, and also something that he's brooding over and thinking about and engaging with, but hasn't yet christened, so to speak, the superego. And so those emergent concepts of the death drive and the superego are at work in the essay on the uncanny, but they're called by different names. The death drive is called um, repetition, okay, the compulsion to repeat. Uh, uh, and, and, we, uh, and we see Freud describing the beginning of something like a superego formation when he's talking about the double. Okay? So the double and the repetition compulsion of those two um, moments in the uncanny essay where he, the concepts he's brooding over in another part of his mind or in another area of his theory are being in the process of still being worked through. Uh, now let me, I just want to read out uh, those two moments. From the uncanny essay. First of all, um, um, it's on page 270. No, it's so faint. What is it? Page 230, sorry, 238 um, in the um, uncanny essay. Um, he says, it is possible to recognize the dominance in the unconscious mind of a compulsion to repeat, puts inverted commas, proceeding from the drive impulses and probably inherent in the very nature of drives, of the trebe a compulsion powerful enough to overrule the pleasure principle, lending to certain aspects of the mind their demonic character. And he uses that word, their demonic character. Um, and still very clearly expressed in the impulses of small children. A compulsion, too, which is responsible for a part of the course taken by the analyses of neurotic patients, particularly the negative transference, the way in which, um, as he says when he's talking about the clinical transference is one of these problematic forms of repetition that's troubling the pleasure principle. He says, uh, you know, it's that tendency for patients in analysis to repeat again and again in their uh, working relationship with the analyst all the painful uh, rages, the distresses, the feelings of being abandoned, the jealousies, the envies, all the bad negative stuff from their childhood. And, and the more... <laughs> you know, Freud takes on board that so much of what analysis is about, uh, he's having to think, well, you know, this isn't pleasurable. It's not pleasurable for them. It's not pleasurable for me as analysts. You know, what is this about? You know, you can imagine them repeating all sorts of fantasies about their childhood, how mummy really loved me or I really had a delightful time or, you know, all the stories you might tell yourself to cheer yourself up, um, all the consolatory narratives that we construct about our past, okay? Um, uh, and indeed, people do tell those kinds of stories and repeat or attempt to repeat those relationships. But overwhelmingly, what, what's at issue or what's crucial in every analysis is the bad stuff. That's why, that's why you're there. Okay. So why is that happening? What is this drive to be angry all over again, this drive to be excluded all over again, this drive to be embittered and, and reproachful and rejected all over again? Okay. Uh, it's not immediately obvious that this is pleasure-seeking, okay? So what is it, right? So this is a, a problem theoretically as well as clinically for the, for the analyst, okay? 
Um, and then he makes this very interesting, um, particularly interesting relation to the story, um, proposition. All these considerations prepare us for the discovery that whatever reminds us of this inner compulsion to repeat is perceived as uncanny. And let me state that again. All these considerations prepare us for the discovery that whatever reminds us of this inner compulsion to repeat is perceived as uncanny. Okay. So here the uncanniness of the repetition compulsion is not bound up so much with the quantity or, or, the, or the content, I should say, the content of what is being repeated, but with the repetition itself. Okay. It's the very fact of an uncontrollable repetition that is felt to be uncanny rather than the content of what is being repeated. And I think that's, uh, that's latent in what Freud is, sa is saying in that sentence. Whatever reminds us of this inner compulsion is perceived as uncanny, okay? As if it's the presence of something within that is un out of control and uh, potentially out of control and demonic, to use that word that, that we've discovered, of course, was so important in Sophocles' play. Okay, now that's, that's a moment where, where in this essay on the uncanny, he's actually rooting the uncanny in the repetition compulsion and uh, what he's going to go on to call the death drive. Not in terms of the content of what is being repeated, but the very ungovernable process of repetition itself. The other passage where you see an emergent concept that's also happening about the same time is where he's talking about the double. It's an earlier passage. Right. Um, he, he talks about that more, more widely. Um, and he wants to talk about the role of a double within within psychic life and also, of course, within um, practices of mourning, interestingly, um, in, say, the ancient Egyptians um, uh, and, and earlier cultures in which um, the, dub the double first appears. Um, uh, let me read that out. First of all, he says, um, the phenomenon of the double um, we have characters who are to be considered identical because they look alike. Um, uh, this can be accentuated by characters uh, 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 in whom mental processes leap from one to the other, uh, which is sometimes called telepathy. So the one, process, one possesses knowledge, feelings, and experience in common with the other. Or it is marked by the fact that the subject identifies himself with someone else so that he is in doubt as to which his self is or substitutes the extraneous self for his own. Now, of course, we saw that precisely happening in extreme forms of melancholia. In fact, that's almost definitional for Freud, isn't it, in the 1917 paper, Mourning and Melancholia, that an identification that throws you into some doubt as to who you actually are, so whether you aren't, in fact, the other person. Um, that famous phrase by... Um, um, my mind's gone blank... Uh, Rimbaud, the French 19th century poet Rimbaud, je est un autre, I is another. Je est un autre, I is another. Um, or it is marked by the fact that the subject, oh, sorry, I've just read that out. In other words, there is a doubling, dividing, and interchanging of the ego, a doubling, dividing, and interchanging of the ego. The repetition of the same features or character traits or vicissitudes of the same crimes or even the same names through several consecutive generations. And he goes on then to say, um, 
he quotes Otto Rank, a, 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 a colleague of his who wrote a whole book on the double. And he says, he goes into the connections which the double has with reflections in mirrors, with shadows, with guardian spirits, with a belief in the soul, with the fear of death. And he also lets a flood of light on the surprising evolution of the idea. For the double was originally an insurance against the destruction of the ego, an energetic denial of the power of death, as Rank says, and perhaps the immortal soul was the first double of the body. This invention of doubling as a pre preservation against extinction has its counterpart in, in dreams, and he goes on to discuss various dreams, etc. Um, he's interested in the moment where, um, having sprung from the soil of unbounded love, from self-love, from primary narcissism, which dominates the mind of the child, uh, this stage then is surmounted when the double reverses its aspect. From having been an assurance of immortality, a preservative against death, it becomes an uncanny harbinger of death. The idea of the double does not necessarily disappear with the passing of primary narcissism, for it can receive fresh meanings from later stages of the ego's development. And we saw that in the On Narcissism paper in section three, where he talks about the formation of the ego ideal and the way in which um, all that, the narcissism of his majesty the baby gets transferred across from the um, idealized ego, the, the loved ego, to an ideal that the ego then has to live up to, an ideal supplied by the parents in, in the first instance. Uh, and he goes on to say, a special agency is slowly formed there, which is able to stand over against the rest of the ego, which has the function of observing and criticizing the self, and of exercising a censorship within the mind, and which we become aware of as our conscience. In the pathological case of delusions of being watched, as in paranoia, this mental agency becomes isolated and dissociated from the ego, and discernible to the physician's eye. The fact that an agency of this kind exists, which is able to treat the rest of the ego like an object, the fact that is that man is capable of self-observation, renders it possible to invest the old idea of a double with a new meaning, and to ascribe a number of things to it. And this strange paradoxical twist of thought, uh, which is characteristic of Freud, he says, above all, what is, what is um, attributed to this double, this, this, this critic within the mind, as it were, um, are all those things which seem to self-criticism to belong to the old surmounted narcissism of earliest times. That's a, so there's a kind of paradox there. The very things that, that might be the object of self-criticism, as it were, have become uh, appropriated by the agency that performs the criticism. In other words, the superego is fueled by the very libido um, and indeed the very narcissism that it's, that it's arraigning and judging in the ego. So it's a sort of paradox about the nature of the superego. Um, so he hasn't used the phrase superego, but uh, the internal double that judges, criticizes, um, but is fueled by the very things that it's judging and criticizing. That's the kind of paradox about the superego. And again, he's seeing that as as, as essential source for the, the aesthetic sensation of the uncanny, right? It's a, again, it's an experience of doubling and of repetition, but a repetition of a different kind, the, rep the doubling of the superego from that of the compulsion to repeat. 
which is much more drive-based and driven, as it were. Okay, so I just wanted to go over some of the ways in which the uncanny essay um, is the other side of Freud's um, incubating uh, these new changes in his theory, and that while he's ostensibly taking a holiday to go and think about aesthetics and write about his favourite early 19th century writer, E.T.A. Hoffman, in fact, um, he is, as it were, developing in a displaced form um, some of his key concepts that are about to uh, burst upon the world, so to speak. Okay. Um, I want to say something about... Um, uh, and what I find really fascinating and very rich about the Uncanny Essay is its, is its, its attention to language, okay, and its linguistic analysis of the term, the German terms, that slip and slide through different permutations. Okay. So he begins, and I've set that out for you on the handout. Okay. Uh, and I'll just briefly... Um, go over that and, and I want to read something from one of the German dictionaries in a minute. Um, so he, he, he goes through certain standard German dictionaries of the period in order to trace the way in which the very German word for this experience, this frisson of the, of the uncanny, um, uh, behave in a very odd way, a way that's illogical. Um, now the root of the term um, unheimlich, uncanny, uh, is home, heim, or heimat, homeland, home, household, homeland. And the original meaning the, in the adjectival form, heimlich, is obsolete in, 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 even in Freud's day in contemporary German. But it meant belonging to the house, okay, or family. And, uh, you know, an English word that does this, has had a similar shift would be like familiar, which really was about belonging to the family. Now, we use it in a much more generalized way, but you can, know, you can see from its Latin root where it's come from. Okay, so he starts off, because unheimlich is a negative term, he starts off with the positive term, heimlich. And he quotes from the dictionary, uh, Sanders Vorterbruch, um, intimate, the first range of meanings that it offers is intimate, comfortable, quote, the enjoyment of quiet content, arousing a sense of agreeable restfulness and security, as in one within the four walls of his house. So you can see the connection there to Heim, very strongly in that definition. You know, homeostasis at home, right, you might call it. The familiar, um, the pleasant or cosy, the canny. Uh, and we might think about how that word canny is used in English or in Scots or in uh, 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 Geordie, even, you know? There's a range of meanings for the word, the English word canny, that you might think about, we can discuss in class. And it can also mean Heimlich, tame or domesticated. Again, there's a connection there to the notion of the household. However, oh well, let me do this in terms of opposites. And the opposite of that is just the negation of that. So Heimlich one is the opposite of, Unheimlich one, rather, is the opposite of Heimlich one. Okay, so unheimlich one is uncomfortable, uneasy, sinister, ghastly, uncanny, of a house, haunted. Again, that connection back to the house. Um, strange, alien, disturbing, weird, eerie. These are the, the words, the synonyms that, 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 um, that the, the dictionary is looking for. 
Um, and it kind of makes sense, you know. Heimlich is that. Unheimlich is the opposite of it. Okay. But then by a very strange development, Unheimlich starts to move and to shift. And the semantic field of the, of the Unheimlich, in the way it's being used in German, starts to change. Okay. And so Heimlich too is described in the following ways. Concealed. Kept from sight. Withheld from others. Behind someone's back. Secret. Shameful. Private. Sinister. Canny. Interesting. <laughs> the same word turns up again. Canny. With the power to penetrate secrets. Shrewdness. Withdrawn from knowledge. Unconscious. Obscure. Inaccessible, hidden, dangerous. <laughs> These are very different semantic connotations from Heimlich one. Okay, uh, so we get this this paradox of um, uh, of, the, of the uncanny shifting um, uh, from virtually into what looks like its opposite. Okay, and indeed, I think Freud actually says as much uh, at the end of that section where he's worked his way through the, di the dictionary entries. He says, thus, Heimlich is a word, the meaning of which develops in the direction of ambivalence until it finally coincides with its opposite, Unheimlich. Unheimlich is in some way or other a subspecies of Heimlich, which of course is not supposed to happen to logical contradictories. Okay? You can't say, if you're dealing with, say, P and not P, that not P is a subspecies of P. Right? It's breaking the rules. But that's what happens. That's what's happening in the development of the term. Okay. Unheimlich is in some way or other a subspecies of Heimlich. Let us bear this discovery in mind, he says. And he then quotes uh, a very interesting definition from um, the philosopher Schelling, who says, quote, Unheimlich, the uncanny, is the name for everything that ought to have remained secret and hidden, but has come to light. Interesting spin on it, okay? Uncanny is the name for everything that ought to have remained secret and hidden, but has come to light. And then Freud's definition in the essay, his dominant definition is, the uncanny is that class of the frightening, which leads back to what is known of old and long familiar. But, but he ought to have added, but unrecognisable. Okay. The uncanny is that class of the frightening which leads back to what is known of old and long familiar, but which we, in our sensation of uncanniness, which we don't recognise exactly. Um, okay, so uh, we have Heimlich 1, Heimlich 2, Unheimlich 1, and then there's this gap where there ought to be Unheimlich 2. And in a way, that's where Schelling's definition belongs, okay? Because it's not just about the secret, the hidden, the dark, the obscure. It's about something that ought to remained hidden, secret, and obscure, but has come improperly to light. Okay. Now, Freud obviously sees a very close affinity here between repression and the return of the repressed. Okay. Um, but he has, again, a definitional or logical problem. Because if, if there's a real sense in which the uncanny is the return of the repressed, you can't say that all experiences of the return of the repressed are uncanny. <laughs> okay? So one category doesn't exhaust the other category. In other words, the, re the repressed and the return of the repressed is a larger category okay, um, within which 
if you like, the uncanny and its relationship to um, uh, the Heimlich um, belongs. But uh, you need further specifications to think about it. Okay. Now I want to end uh, by reading out a very interesting um, bit from the dictionary where two, it quotes a conversation from a German novel in which two German speakers discover they're using the same word to mean the opposite of each other. Right? So it's a very interesting moment. Okay. Uh, <coughs> Uh, and they try to say, look, look, there are these two meanings of the word, and we really ought to try and spell them differently to preserve the original meaning. Unheimlich and unheimlich. This is the dictionary editor's attempt to kind of uh, stabilize the, 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 the paradoxical and illogical movement of meaning in the term. Okay. Um, because the original meaning is important, and we don't want to lose it with this, this new development from Heimlich 1 to Heimlich 2. Okay, uh, this form of the word deserves to be Heimlig. This this form of the word deserves to become general in order to protect this perfectly good sense of the word from becoming obsolete through an easy confusion with Heimlich too. Okay, and then he quotes this fascinating little snippet of dialogue from a German novel. He doesn't. Um, it's by somebody called Gutzkov. Um, and interesting, it's about a family. <laughs> okay, um, the Zex. It's there patronymic, their family name. The Zecks, a family, are all, uh, the, the Zecks, the family, are all Heimlich, says one speaker. Uh, and the, and the, first, the second speaker is rather puzzled by this. Heimlich? What do you understand by Heimlich? And the first speaker says, well, they are like a buried spring or a dried up pond. One cannot walk over it without always having the feeling that water might come up there again. Isn't that interesting? They are like a buried spring or a dried up pond. One cannot walk over it without always having the feeling that water might come up there again. And the second speaker replies, oh, we call that unheimlich. You call it heimlich. Well, what makes you think that there is something secret and untrustworthy about this family? So the secrecy, the untrustworthiness, the, the hidden or opaque dimensions, are called Heimlich by one speaker and Unheimlich by the other speaker. Um, so I think it's a fascinating little moment um, which leads us then into the second definition concealed from sight so that others do not see it. Now one can partly, and I haven't got time to do it in any detail, but one can sort of see how a whole cultural history might take place here. You know, and one of the things that's at stake is precisely this obsolete relationship to the house, the family, a movement from one model of the family structure to another model of family structure. Uh, in other words, from an open house, um, open kinship structured family, where many generations and blood relations and even people who were just temporary members of the familus or of the household would be included. Think of the, um, the, um, the Montagues and Capulets in Romeo and Juliet or something, you know, the house of Montague, the house of the Capulets. And something like a kind of bourgeois um, nuclear family, mummy, daddy, and me, and a very tight boundary about us. We see little hands, don't we, having to learn that there's a boundary. When he says, I want to go off and sleep with Murray Edel. Uh, and the mother says, oh, you don't want to go and leave mummy, do you? And he says, that's okay, yes, um, I'll come back in the morning and do number one. The mother says, oh, well, take your, take your clothes and off you go. And he does. But he has to, and she said, needless to say, he had to be brought back. He's learning the rules. Right, family divisions are tight. You don't go downstairs and sleep with 
whoever you feel like sleeping, you have to stay up here with mummy and daddy. So there's a kind of, if you like, a, a nuclear family territorialization of, 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 of family and psychic space that's, you know, in a sense, the context for these linguistic shifts, right? So that um, if you ask the question, where is the person located who's having the uncanny experience? In Heimlich 1, right, he's experiencing things at home and he's happy contented within the four walls of his own house. As I said, homeostasis at home. Right? Um, in the opposite of that, Unheimlich, one, where is the person having the experience located? Well, um, they're sensing some stranger coming from the outside who doesn't belong at home, who's not one of us, who's an outsider figure. Okay? But when Heimlich does its 180 degrees flip into its opposite and means secretive, opaque, untrustworthy, dark, okay? Where is the person who's having that experience located, okay? It's a person who's looking at another family, the Zex, and saying, look at them. <laughs> Aren't they heimlich, unheimlich? That is to say, the, per the person, the subject of the experience is on the outside looking in at the other, not on the inside seeing the other on the out, as an outsider or alien, but looking at some closed-off space belonging to the other. And of course, we, if you ask the same question of the, the empty space for, what would be unheimlich to, Schelling's definition of what ought to have remained secret and hidden but has come improperly to light, then where is the, the subject of that experience? Well, the subject of the experience is back at home again. Only being at home is rather frightening. Alien things break out not from the outside in, but break out from within. Okay. Uh, as Freud says, the unheimlich is a subspecies of the heimlich. The unheimlich is at home with the heimlich, as it were. The unheimlich breaks out from within. This is not supposed to happen in terms of the basic rules of logic, where opposites are mutually exclusive, but in this case the structure is paradoxical. That is to say, the opposite breaks out from within. Okay. Uh, and I'll leave it there for you to think about.